Hello, welcome to Darkly Lit. We are that part of your brain that looks at a novel that looks a bit strange, a bit not quite right, and you say, yeah, I'm going to give this a shot. My name is Kayla Berry, and uh, I will be one of your hosts for the evening. To my immediate left is Mr. David King. I'm just suffering from Ohio fever, you guys. <laughs> In the state to the north of us is... Uh, dead end Sade. Just say it is fine. I am producer for Darkly Lit and creator of the Witching Hour podcast. I also have a cold, so I apologize if I don't sound good. And to in, from the state to the far right of me is Miss C.F. Comer. Hi, I'm C.F. Comer, aka Chelsea Comer, and I draw stuff sometimes, and I read stuff sometimes. <laughs> And I love Donald Dre Pollock. One day I will hunt him down and get him to <laughs> autograph my boob. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like as good a reason as any to take a road trip to Chillicothe. Yeah. Uh, before we delve into the novel we just read, uh, we actually received a comment, uh, an audio comment from one of our listeners about the last uh, story we read, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. This is from Alex Hatzberger. So uh, let's give that a listen. This story really struck me when I first read it about 10 years ago. I was just introduced to the RPG of Changeling the Lost, where you play as a person who has been held captive as a play toy for the fairies, and you've been tortured, your body and mind being warped by their sick, twisted, and genuinely just incomprehensible desires. I was amazed at how Ellison's story encapsulated the whole idea of the RPG. And it also intrigued me that I kind of came across the two independently at about the same time. Once I got a copy of the rulebook, however, I saw that this story was listed as an inspiration for both players and storytellers. I definitely wasn't the first one to make the comparison. But one of the things about the story that always struck me was the tone. There's this oppressive atmosphere. You can feel the palpable animosity that the characters have towards each other and towards Am. There's also this general feeling of helplessness that's just expertly shown in the story. Reading it again, I still can't believe how in a dozen or so pages, Ellison managed to tell a more compelling and atmospheric story than the most big-budget Hollywood blockbuster horror film that I've seen. Another thing that always intrigued me was how this story shares similarities to Osama Tezuka's Phoenix Volume 2, A Tale of the Future. Granted, the premise itself is pretty simple. Hyper-advanced computers have decided to bomb each other's society off the face of the planet in a desperate attempt to eliminate danger. But what struck me as an interesting similarity is where in I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, the only surviving humans are held in thrall by this evil and perpetually hating supercomputer the three survivors in Tezuka's work become the beings who shape the future of the planet. 
And I find it interesting how different authors have different takes on these sort of end-of-the-world scenarios. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Thank you so much for the podcast. I greatly enjoy listening to it. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> well said. <laughs> nice. I you know I didn't I've never played Changeling, so I can't necessarily make the comparison. But uh, but he does put that in perspective. If, has anyone here ever played any White Wolf RPGs? Nope. nope. I know. Nope. <laughs> I, I, they're all in the same universe, and they all have a specific supernatural thing you can kind of do. You know, that's why that's where vampire is the same universe as Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, is it? Oh, oh really? Yeah, Changeling's in that same universe. That's pretty cool. But I I don't know much about Changeling, but I can I can kind of see the comparison he's talking about. Also, Osamu Tezuka is also great. I'm not familiar with that particular work, but I mean it's it's the guy who created it's the the the, the godfather of manga. Yeah, Astro Boy. All Astro Boy. All the hidden furry porn. <laughs> <laughs> but like, not to mention his his version of Metropolis is yes, is that's exactly fucking. what I thought of when he mentioned uh, Tezuka's work because it's oh, another wow. you know just man creating this super powered machine that then turns on them. Oh yeah, oh, so that, good that movie and the music is so wonderful. I can't stop loving you. <laughs> <laughs> I love how that got inserted in there, but yeah. The We'll have to talk about Metropolis somewhere else, I guess. Somehow, yeah. We'll Somehow, find we'll find a way could, to talk about Metropolis. I mean, we could technically bring it up on uh, The Witching Hour. We could discuss, like, horror and sci-fi or something like that. Horror and anime. Ooh, that too. We technically haven't done that yet, so yeah. I haven't been sure how I want to approach that, so that's on the list eventually. True, but that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. That's We're on, right now, we're, uh, I mean, I guess... Uh, I guess that's a that's a nice way to to look at. Yeah, I agree with what Alex says about how much how much Harlan Ellison was able to get done with the space he had. That's a mm-hmm. sign of good. And that's the thing. Uh, Harlan Ellison is a really talented writer. He knows exactly the right words to say to convey the right emotion and feeling. And that's why I love that story so much. And I, I kind of find it interesting because the word that we didn't, I don't think we ever used in the. Uh, last episode was end of the world, but yeah, it's an end of the world story. It's, it's a an- post-apocalyptic story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, which is interesting because it's like I don't think of it like that because it's whenever you think post-apocalyptic, you think in the midst of it, like it just happened not too long ago. Where this one, it's like years and years and years and after this whole thing happened, mm-hmm. that the, this these three supercomputers combined and basically destroyed the world. So. It is. Fast. There's a distinct lack of zombies and also people driving beat up cars around killing <laughs> yeah. each other. So it's not your typical post-apocalyptic story. And I kind of like that. It, you don't read and think, oh, yeah, it's post-apocalyptic story. You think, oh, this is kind of a frightening, horrible situation. Uh-huh. But thank you, Alex. I really appreciate the comments. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, and now we shall move on to our novel, The Devil All the Time, by Donald Ray Pollock. And since this is Chelsea's choice, she'll be the one to give the summary. Hi, I'm Chelsea, again. <laughs> <laughs> the this one, book the, is kind of hard to describe in any, yeah. any way. It, it, there's a lot of different things. There's there's a lot we of believe, things we believe in you, Chelsea, because we know how much you love the, you love the material. Oh my god, I love this book so much. Like, everything by him I love. 
knock them stiff, the heavenly table. Devil all the time was the first one I read of his, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it's set in rural southern Ohio and West Virginia. Uh, there are multiple points of view. Um, I'd have to say, if I had to choose a main character, it would probably be um, Arvin, Arvin Russell, uh, who in the beginning is a child, and by the end, I think he's, what, 17? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book starts off, like, and this is just the prologue that I'm going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> it starts off um, with his father, uh, William Russell, making sacrifices to a prayer log in their backyard to uh, try and save Charlotte, his wife, and Arvin's mother from cancer. And that should really set the tone for the whole novel because we also have two serial killers who like to kill hitchhikers, um, <laughs> a crooked cop, a uh, lawyer who owns a house where um, William and Charlotte live, whose wife is cheating on him, and he tries to hire someone to kill her. And just full of crazy drama, crazy uh, Appalachian drama, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think... The interesting thing about this is when you first hear it, you don't think, oh, this is a horror. But the horror comes from, I, for me, it's like how far the, like these simple people, you wouldn't think like, oh, yeah, they would kill someone. No, they they do some horrible shit. Oh, my God. They do terrible things to each other and to other people. And it's just. And it, it, also, it's the insanity of it. Like, wow. I mean, I mean one of the, the first horrors to come is this uh Creature who legitimately thinks he can bring people f- back from the dead. Oh and, yeah, and I think that was the I think that was the point where I was like, oh god, oh god, because he kills his wife because he thinks, oh, I could just bring her back, and he's being tricked by his cousin because his cousin has a bit of a crush on the preacher and is like, oh, this is a way to get rid of th- this woman, and it's just like how he reacts to the death, and then realizing like oh my gosh i can't bring her back it, it's just described so not it's almost horrific i want to say it, well, is, it is horrific, horrific. It is horrific. yeah i think the, the what hor- sorry no go ahead <laughs> well i think the horror comes from maybe not exactly the horrible like the 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 sins that these different characters commit and like the different murder that they all do but in the reasons behind it it's like what's really mm-hmm. horrifying for me. It's like, oh, I'm killing all these animals to save my wife, or um, killing uh, my wife because I want to reconnect with God, and I'm killing and taking these photographs because I want to amount to something. It, it really is the insanity behind it, but the way that because it's from their point of view, they make it to seem like it's a sane thing. Mm-hmm. Like, what they're doing is, like, no, I really believe this. This is a, I'm doing this because of this reason, and I fully believe it. It does what, like, very few novel, horror novels do, and puts us in the point of view of, I I don't want to say the serial killer, but it's kind of like that. Well, it does. Yeah, 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 (laughs) but I mean, like. (laughs) Multiple serial killers, really. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, it puts us in the mindset of, um what would you would think is the villain of the novel, but then it turns out every character is a villain in this novel. Mm-hmm. And they all um, have good reasons for, or well, maybe not good reasons, but you can understand their logic after reading it. Yeah. I think what I loved most was, especially with all the variety of characters was like, they're, they're doing these horrible things 
that if you describe just off the bat, like, this couple goes around and they kill hitchhikers and take their photos of their dead bodies. That sounds... sounds, Yeah, and they also, like, fuck with the bodies. Um, It sounds, when you describe it just like that, so inhuman, like, how could someone do that? But the way we're, we're brought into it is through their mindset and, like, their just, their process and just how they, like, just, it's really in the character and it's, off the bat, it sounded inhuman, but when you're seeing it through the character, it's it's all very, very human. It's, no, that, that that sums it up beautifully, I think, because like it, it's it's it gets surprisingly intimate with sort of how they feel mm-hmm. about what they're doing. Like you you especially like uh, since we're on the subject of, you know, the photographs. So that's what I'm thinking of, since it's one of the more horrific aspects of the novel. It's 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 the only way that um the, the photographer, Carl, mm-hmm. is able to feel like he can connect to anything bigger than himself because he most of the time he feels like pretty useless, you know, mm-hmm. or he feels inadequate or he feels like he can't, you know, get, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, get get aroused. Like he goes and privately looks at the pictures in order to feel something. Uh, uh, overall, I want to say that this novel is is gross, but not in like a slimy, disgusting way, but in like a like a that's been sitting way out too long and is flaky kind of gross. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's like, gritty. It's gritty. It is, it is gritty. very gritty. But it's it's like not true grit so much as it. I mean, I don't know. True grit is something else entirely. Uh, <laughs> true grit is. Um, I've, I've seen Pollock's writing uh, compared to William Faulkner's. Mm, I can kind of see that actually. Yeah, for. Uh, for the listeners out there, do you want to explain Faulkner's writing or who Faulkner is? Uh, nah. You can, because I, I have no notes on Faulkner <laughs> on hand. I, and, you know, I, don't I was like not prepared for this essay question. I'm going to have to dig up my, uh, I have to dig up what I remember from my English classes, because that was my introduction. I haven't uh, read Faulkner oh, in what? so long. What was the book where they had to, like, take the mom, mom's body? Oh, 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 oh. sorry, I just, I just... Oh, he did a Rose for Emily. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I could totally. Yeah, the comparison is yeah. apt. I my my lizard brain was like, yeah, I I agree with that, but why do I agree with that? And then off, and then I had to remember that he wrote probably one of my, another one of my favorite short stories in terms of horror, uh, a Rose for Emily, that which actually, has the great reveal at the end of. Uh, well, we won't get into it because I think that should be a story we should read in the future. You know what? Sure. Although, if you want to hear the Midnight Marinara version of it, <laughs> that does exist, featuring prominently the voice of Reinhardt, Darren DePaul. Shameless plug for my own show. He plays a character in that adaptation. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Fans of Overwatch? Anyone? Oh, my gosh. But I, honestly, I think uh, it is worth the read because, I mean, uh, your show does a good interpretation of it, but it's still, it had to be adapted so you could hear people talking, which is not really Faulkner style. So, I mean, so I, 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 could, I could see the comparison. Luckily, characters here have, have more in the way of dialogue, but it is. Yeah. You know what I find interesting about Pollock's writing is uh, when he writes situations, he tends to, he can jump between perspectives mm-hmm. of characters very seamlessly. Like, he doesn't have to dedicate a whole chapter. Like, right. for a paragraph, he'll switch the perspective of a different character. And then he'll and it's, be like, back. very smooth. It's not like Queen of the Damned, where <laughs> it's a little jarring at times. It's very smooth. I, I, I envy that, and it, like, reminds me that if you do it well enough as a writer, like, that's okay. You can do that. And, in fact, it's it's valuable in this novel. We get... 
weird insights into people that we almost never see again, but it's kind of important we get that perspective. Like uh, the bus like driver, the, first chapter. Yeah, or the uh, the guy that works in Maud's shop. I think we only have two chapters with him. Yeah, but we uh, yeah, it's true, and and but we remember him, and it's important because at the end of the novel we meet Hank again. Yeah. Right. So, which is really fascinating. I actually wanted to ask this: um, Is there any character in this novel you see as being in the right? Or yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Okay, who who do you see as being in the right? Who, Let's go. Uh, who are you asking first? Any of you guys. Uh, let's go with you since you're talking to me, <laughs> okay. David. Yeah, I'm gonna say it right off the bat. Um, Arvin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even though he killed, he, he's probably the one who kills the most out of everybody. He's, well, he no. literally well, like when well. the first time he kills someone is like vigilante holler justice, which you can't blame him for at mm-hmm. all. Because like, look at the um, Hatfields and McCoys. Like that's that's fine. That's and true. then the second time he killed. Um, two people, and it's because they were going to kill him. It was self-defense. Yeah, it was self-defense, and then the third time was self-defense too. Like this poor boy has been through so much. I just yeah, want him has. to be happy. Oh my god, and he's I still know. a teenager. I just, I just want to give him a hot chocolate. <laughs> he's got a moral code. Like he's got the whole thing with his. I mean, even when he's beating the shit out of the bullies, the the other students who make fun of his. Lenora. Uh, yeah, Lenora, his pseudo, his pseudo his sister, sister, his adopted yeah. sister. I, I actually kind of like the fact that they didn't make a romance between them. That's, I mean, like, I like Lenora was trying, but Arvin was just like, bro, we're we're basically brother and sister, and this ain't this ain't but, fine by me. <laughs> but I love that after after she she dies, um, like oh he looks God. back on that conversation and goes, "Why couldn't I have done something about that?" Like as a hindsight thing. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, I, I, yeah, romance would be weird or anything like that. But, well, any sort of relationship in this setting, apart from a couple, are like really weird and also kind of gross in themselves. Right. Look at the, look at the, look at uh, Preacher Tea Garden. Yeah. Who is the one killed out of vigilante justice. And you, you see the relationship between him and his wife and it's fucked up. And, and furthermore, and also, and not that's not just because he's going around and taking advantage of young impressionable girls in the now, community. Now, does this make Lenora in the wrong then, or do you? Because no, I, I I think that she was just. I, I mean, that's the first time anyone expressed any kind of interest in her, and like she's a teenager, like mm-hmm. she's not she's not gonna know what to do. No, she was completely an innocent victim because Tea Garden, it's, he's so described as like, he knows what he's doing. He he even says like, he said exactly what she wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. He's fucking disgusting. What is disgusting? He really said that he brainwashed his wife. Yeah. His 15 year old wife. Yeah. It's funny. There are like serial killers in here and I think he's probably the most despicable character. He is. He really is. Like in the short amount of time that we spend with him, he really does become the most like vile character. He is the most slimy guy. Mm -hmm. And there's a think maybe because he's also made like the most like, like least relatable. Yes. Mm. What were you about to say, Chelsea? Oh, I, I I said there's even a lawyer in this book, and he's slimier than him. <laughs> you can't even. The thing is, like, the lawyer is almost a pity, more a pitiable character, right? Because yeah. like his wife is just messing around with him for, or messing around with other men from day one of their marriage. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he, he is kind of holding it over Arvin's parents. Like, hey, you know, I own the house you're living in. And, like, I'm going to jerk your rent around. But, like, mm-hmm. we even get, we even find out that the only reason he's such an asshole is because he's just, he knows his life is shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the sheriff is corruptible, but it's like, you kind of feel for him because he cares about his sister. And, I mean, there's there's moments about him that make him feel relatable. The, with, all the characters, except with for, a few exceptions, are <laughs> somewhat relatable, which is what part, the part of the strength of the writing Mm-hmm. And it's horrifying when you realize that some of these characters are relatable. Mm-hmm. I think right now we're kind of jumping around, hitting on different characters. Can I just try to list off characters as they were introduced, and that way we can yeah, sh- address go, go each for one? It. Okay. Yeah. So okay. We do start with with Willard, right? Right. Willard, yes. So let's talk about Willard, his so, character, and just kind of what happens for him. So uh, Willard. Um, is forced by his family. Well, basically, his family is trying to push him to marry this uh, this woman. He doesn't want to marry. He'd rather marry the most beautiful woman. Well, really, um, really, it's more. Um, he he's just gotten back. He just got back from World War Two, yeah. um, and he doesn't know this, but his mom made a promise to God that he will marry the homely Helen. <laughs> and uh, like That's on his way right. home, he stopped at the wooden spoon and he saw this waitress and he absolutely fell in love with her. And he's like, I'm going to marry her. I need to go back to, chill, um, what was it? Knock him stiff? Uh, Whatever. Cold Creek. Cold Creek. Oh. No. Cool. No, Cold Creek is where the mom lives. Well, anyway, no, wait, wait, wait. The, he, the, he needs the to go back and marry Charlotte, even right. though he doesn't know her name at this point. All right. uh, Cold <laughs> Creek is in West Virginia, right? That's where um, Will is from. Yeah. Right. And then, and then he meet the wooden spoon and knock him stiff are both in the vicinity of Mead, Ohio. Yes. Yes. Okay. Geographics well, are kind of important in rather. Story. Yeah. They... Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause, uh, the meat is in Chilla coffee, mm. which if you don't know what the meat is, it's this giant paper mill and it makes all of Chilla coffee kind of smell a little weird. <laughs> I think I, well, when we visited Chilla coffee was, didn't we see the mill? I think so. I think yeah. I think you guys might have seen it from a distance. Which, by the way, the uh, writer of this worked in in the Mead for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, okay. on to the next <laughs> character that's introduced. Well, we Willard also uh, he does marry Charlotte. They have Arvin, who we later later we pretty much get to see Arvin grow up. But we'll get to Arvin. Um, but then what happens when Charlotte has cancer? What does poor Willard go through? Right, he starts sacrificing animals on a prayer log to God. It's a crisis of faith. Faith. If I pray I wonder, hard enough, I might be able to save her. Yeah. If and I sacrifice enough lambs, I might be able to save her. If I sacrifice a lawyer, I might be able to save her. Oh my God, I felt so bad about that one dog. There, I know. No, I was all good. With, I was all good with Willard until he killed a dog. So oh yeah. my God. I do like how it becomes like a massive plot thing later about mm-hmm. uh, Jack the dog. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You were a good dog, Jack. He was. And so, we'll, we'll definitely, I think I want to save Arvin for last, just because his kind of goes through the whole story. That's but, true. So, so right, Willard, Willard is just pouring blood all over this prayer log. Arvin is there with him praying. Then we did already touch on the lawyer a bit, who Willard does then kill and adds to his prayer log. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte dies. And Willard's story ends, and then we're kind of introduced to um, Roy, the preacher, and Theodore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're also 
uh, I would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, Uncle Earske- Earskel and, uh, and Emma. Is it Earskel or Erskel? I think it's Erskel. I Is it Erskel? I feel like Erskel would be the way it's pronounced. Yeah. Uh, I might be wrong, but like I, I just feel... I, I would say it would be Erskel. I'll agree with you. But it's spelled E-A-R-S-K-E-L-L. So it says e- phonetically, it's, or not phonetically, but Earskel. That could be Erskel. It is. But his name has a big ear in it. So. <laughs> well, to be fair, my last name is Comer, which we put an L in, even though there's no L. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, if if we're on the, I mean, I just want I'd be remiss if we didn't mention them because they're both they they're they're important. They don't do a ton, but they're important to right. the novel, and they're the closest thing both Willard and Arvin have to sort of a moral center. You know, at mm. least Arvin does because there's so much regret that goes with them later and. Neither of them do anything particularly horrible in the story. Um, did we mention that Emma is Willard's, Willard's mother? mother? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so many characters in there this. There are a lot of characters. There's the <laughs> cast of thousands. I mean, I just wanted to touch on them real quick. And then but we can talk about Roy and, and Theodore. In order to talk about Roy and Theodore, we do have to talk a little bit more about Helen, I think. Yes. Um, pious, bad Only audio. Helen. Helen. Helen with the long horse face. <laughs> I dream of Helen with a long, long horse, horse, face. horse face. Yeah, Helen falls in love with uh, which one was it? Roy. Roy. Roy was the. Person. And they have a daughter named Leon, Lenora. 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 And then what was it? Roy. So Roy, his he had very uh, interesting way of preaching. He'd pour spiders on his head. Oh my god, I yeah. have like one quote from that where he said, uh, spiders crawled through my dreams and laid eggs in my nightmares, and I love it. That's a really oh, good bet. Good quote, yeah. I, I love that sentence. <laughs> See, that's, that's one of the great things about this. There's actually, other than just like uh, the um, motivations for why they do this horrible things that makes it scary, there actually is some like scary imagery in here. Like, mm-hmm. like with the spiders, the fact that the prayer log, and you're just like, oh, the crucified animals. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird, weird. All the dead imagery. hitchhikers. Yeah, there's some weird, creepy imagery in here. Mm-hmm. The way they found some of the dead hitchhikers. <laughs> oh my god, a lot of that. A lot of the hitchhiker stuff stuff is done real subtle too, which is yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. So. With Roy and Theodore, well, we learn Theodore is in love with Roy. Um, he can has no longer has use of his legs, so he's entirely dependent on Roy. And and why does he no longer have use of his legs? You what remember? Did he drink. He drank like antifreeze. Yeah, you know, as part of the the preach and to prove his faith to God. That's just horrifying for me. Oh. <laughs> like my mother went through this phase. When I was in high school, where she got very religious for a while and was going to these like adult church group things, and they had like prayers, like little prayer circles in like somebody's house. And I got dragged to it. And like, I just remember one time watching all the adults, and the woman like leading the prayer is like in tears. It was just kind of all horrifying to me. Yeah. And so, I don't know, just the, the extent that some people take to the, their faith to is. That's, that's actually, um. One of the fascinating and yeah. Sorry, Kayla, go ahead. No, 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 no. You you deserve to finish your run, but I was just going to say one of the questions that I was 
going to bring up eventually. It, it basically has to deal with religion in this novel because that's a, it's definitely a theme I want to touch upon because it's mm-hmm. very a very big part of it. I was I was something I've been thinking about for a bit too, but yeah, um, I also maybe we should have, finish. I also have something. <laughs> but, but yeah, <laughs> I wonder if it's all the same. <laughs> we can. Do, do you think we should uh, power through the rest of the characters though? Yeah, let's get through the rest of the cast just in case. There's a lot of people hasn't, hasn't read it, which I suggested. If you haven't read this and you're listening to this, go go read this novel. Spoilers. Yes. So many spoilers. Are oh being my god! So many spoilers. Yeah. You can't talk oh, about I hope you read the novel first. On, this is this is a podcast where we're discussing novels. It's basically guaranteed. Your yes. homework. Your homework to listen to this episode was to read this novel. Yeah. It's it's a book club. Well, for a we'll put a warning in the beginning of this episode just to remind people, like, hey, please go read the book first. Seriously. Fuck. It's okay. very good. It, it really is. All right. All right. Let's uh, wrap up. With Theodore and Roy, they 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 kill Helen because Roy loses his connection with God. He stops hearing God, and then what he doesn't he like lock himself up in a closet. Yep, I I think yeah, wasn't he locking himself up in the closet before he killed Helen though? Yes, he was. That's where he suddenly got the epiphany that oh my God, I can bring people back from the dead. Right, and so who has wanted Helen gone. Uh, since the beginning, convinces him that, okay, well, then kill your wife if you're so... So before they kill his wife, they drop Lenora off mm-hmm. with um, Emma. Mm-hmm. And then they run off to the woods to see if they can bring her back. And, and they can't. That's not nope. as well as you nope. think it would. No. What, what, struck, what I thought was like really interesting with Roy and Theodore was like Roy never seemed to be like, oh, God, you tricked me into killing my, my wife. Instead, he goes on the run with Theodore and he stays with him until Theodore passes because they just they just have a really hard time. Well, aside when they were like traveling with the carnival. Yeah, but then Theodore had to diddle a kid and get him kicked out. <laughs> he was... Uh, he was in a he was in a happy relationship with a with a clown for a bit. Flapjack though. with uh, Flapjack the clown with his uh, glitter on his eyelashes. I think he said at one point. And and Roy was with the flamingo lady for a bit, who apparently really was a flamingo. Apparently, the circus bit. <laughs> According circus to Roy, bit, at least the circus bit really started to feel like, in terms of other stories I've read with gritty writing, started to feel very geek love for a little bit. Did you oh. kind of get that feeling too, Kayla? I you know. I can see that. Uh, that is another novel. Oh my gosh. We have to read Geek Love. We should do Geek the Love. It's gross and gross. <laughs> well, it's a really weird book, but here's the thing. It's it's really good too, but it's really weird. But it's extremely influential too. Like this book basically helped influence um Tim Burton on things. Like that if that says anything. But uh the the whole circus bit made me think of that. But yep. Theodore diddled a kid, and yeah, they got and kicked out. Stupid shithead. <laughs> Roy's stories, and when he meets up with Carl and Sandy. So let's talk about Carl and Sandy. Ah. Carl and Sandy. I uh, actually the creepy killer killers. I kind of liked Sandy just because I I I feel like she was just dragged into it. Mm-hmm. from the beginning and she was just kind of like this is what i'm stuck in i don't know how to get out i'm just gonna live with this yeah she she doesn't have a ton of agency sandy she's just kind of there i mean she she has she's a co- deeply complex character don't let me say mm-hmm. that like 
because of that, she's not a complex character. But she doesn't really like act on these like resentments like she has for Carl over time and she thinks about oh how could things be different and stuff but she just kind of rolls with the plan she rolls with Carl and the rules and everything whereas I think before Tea Garden is introduced Carl was just kind of the, the really like oh I don't like you Not Carl's that I, like, pretty go ahead Carl's pretty scummy he's pretty gross yeah, yeah. like I just mean, picturing him, him makes me want to take I a mean, shower he did kind of sell Sandy to a porno shoot oh well, oh, man. yeah, that was reading about that. That was, was awful. Up. Yeah, when they 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 tried to go to California to be legitimate, and then that was like, yeah, that that was fucked up big time. Oh my god, <laughs> I almost <laughs> forgotten about that part. Like, to remind me. I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, but it also was like kind of like like he didn't realize what he was getting Sandy into, or it was a mistake on his part. I don't know, like, it, it, both those, I think they're out of all the characters, they're the two most tragic. They me. are. They, they are. Yeah. I can actually agree with you there, weird as that sounds. I think, I think Arvin is equally as tragic, though. True. I think there, there's something to be said for the two of them, because they did leave to go to California with these ideas, but Carl had to be stupid, and they both had, they, I'm not saying it was equal, because it's hell, sure as hell was not. But that event traumatized them both in different ways yeah. and set them on the course that they got set on. I mean, after that, it was just like, hey, let's let's kill people and take pictures. And that's how I'm going to make my way as an artist. OK. And then from from Sandy, we, we later. Well, actually, we met him early on. Uh, what was the guy's name? Bodecker? The uh, corrupted Lee Bodecker. Lee Bodecker. Yes. Sandy's brother, mm-hmm. he actually convinced their mother to take her out of school, which I think led her to Carl. Yeah, because mm-hmm. that's because he got her dropped out of school, had her working. What, was it at the Wooden Spoon? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then that's where Carl found her. So we can we can just blame Lee because I mean, he's also Lee's on my kind list of a dirtbag. Yeah, honestly. I don't like Lee either. <laughs> he is he is he is the definition of a crooked cop. Mm-hmm. he's clearly in league with uh, a shady element of the town he has killed people for for money oh, I can't tater 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 brown yeah. tater brown that's right we never meet tater brown but we hear yeah. about tater brown yeah the first kill for tater brown i think was a thousand dollars and the second was five thousand that's so all i remember about tater <laughs> And he cares a lot about his image which is even more which is even worse because like he will he will let things slide in order to make it seem like his he's done nothing wrong. He'll cover things up. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's a he's a real piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> now, later when he discovers the the photographs that Carl and Sandy have been taking, do you think he he want he burned them because he didn't want people to know what his sister was into or because he didn't want it ruining his reputation? I think based on all the other chapters with him, he didn't want it ruining his reputation. Same. I agree with that too. He didn't but want I think any- he went after Arvin as revenge for Sandy. Yeah. Right. The- In his own mind, it was justified because also he, he this was the thing where he went after Arvin for revenge, but he also needed to make sure that no one knew about this, this the, these crimes. He was also, wasn't he also thinking, though, that he was going to make Arvin out to look like he'd gone mad and that him putting down this, like, mad killer would help him with, his, with the next re-election? 
Yeah, but I don't know if he, he when they said mad killer, I don't know if he meant like he I don't think he was going to say I'm going to pin all these serial killings on Arvin, but no, he's going he to at least gonna pin, pin the his Sandy Carl and Tea Garden at least. Right. That. Yeah. Okay. Who, who's left besides Arvin? Uh there's Hank Bell. The guy who works at mods. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a oh. character who's not there's a character who's not really a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, your your dad killed himself? You know, here, have a root beer and let's call the cop. <laughs> That's I loved And then I'm gonna daydream about this uh this gal who likes really weird things sexually. Good for him. Yeah. He was for as little as we see him, he was very endearing, and I, like, kind of connected with his thought of, like, oh, yeah, one day I'm going to go off, and, you know, everything's going to be good, and I'm going to be in, like, was it Cincinnati's where he wanted to go? Yeah, Cincinnati. he wanted to go to Cincinnati. And then, like, years later, we're with Arvin, and we're, we're back at the shop, and, like, oh, his camper's <laughs> still out there. And you're just kind of like, oh, it's, like, nice to see him, but you feel bad for him because he's still there. Yeah. Right. It's like, no, get out. Go to Cincinnati. It's not that far away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how he, how he's gonna he can hitchhike, but we know how risky that is. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Who else? Um, there's Tick Thompson. I have written down. He was the one that told Arvin that uh, Lenora was pregnant at the funeral. Oh yeah. If we start getting to every single small yeah, character, we're did we talk get... about Lenora? Did we talk about? Uh, we talked about I... Helen. We didn't really talk about Lenora. Yeah, we, we, we talked mentioned... about how she was naive and and you know what's weird is she's very like her mother because she falls for a preacher and the preacher right. ends up being terrible. So it's just this echo of what's happened before. The preacher ends up getting her killed. Okay, so poor Lenora yep. ends up pregnant and abandoned by this. Oh, shitty piece oh of my God. shit motherfucker. Yeah. Worst character. Worst. What, what worst was, character. I think her death was the most painful because she had, like, spoilers, the noose around her neck. And she's like, wait, no, I think I can make this work. And then the bucket slips out and she's like, oh, shit, wait, no, 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 no. And you're just like, no. But, yeah, and then she, oh, I hated that. Like, it, like, but it oh. surprises me because she she's such a Christian girl, and for her to choose suicide though, like that. I mean, well, everything she perceived about that's true. A teenager in a yeah, very that's, that's, that's true because she was also she's already committed adultery, so it's kind of like she might have like she's like, oh, I'm already going to hell, so right. And yeah. plus, everything she knows about like her faith has been shook up because she's been fed all this bullshit by uh, a someone who is supposed ostensibly a man of God. Yeah, someone who is supposed to be a preacher. That's true. Yeah, and then when she tried to go to talk to him about it, he was like. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. We've never, like, I've never touched you. Yeah, you're just crazy. Yeah, you're just crazy. Yeah, Arvin deserved to kill him. Yeah. He, he, he deserved to die. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, my only thing I'm angry about is that it wasn't more gruesome. <laughs> I know. Make it bloodier. For some reason, I was also kind of like, I really liked Tea Garden's wife. Like, even though her, yeah. she, has, she has almost no character because she is brainwashed, but something about her, just like the way I imagined her in my head, I was like, I kind of like you you for some reason. <laughs> I think it, yeah. I think she could have been a much more fascinating character if she was more touched upon. I mean, I'm glad she wasn't touched upon because it was enough to show, oh, God, she's basically being brainwashed and that's all you need to she's know. She's a Stepford wife. But yeah. she wasn't like 100 percent 
like obedient because we have that scene in when tea garden first appears and they're having that that what was it the the lunch where everyone bought food for That's him right. the Chicken two girls liver. yeah oh, oh my man, god that pissed me so off so much i know me too oh i fucking love chicken <laughs> liver okay but like the two young girls walk in and you know suddenly and arvin notices oh suddenly he's got a little more pep he's he's like oh welcome and the wife goes over whispers a comment and tea garden like pinches her to punish her so she's like not like 100 and then also uh, also like they they, he mentions that she's not religious at all and if she was really brainwashed she probably would have been religious yeah yeah Yeah. i think it was those little details that i was kind of like okay well she knows she's in a shitty place but i feel like she knew well one day this fucker's gonna get himself killed Mm mm-hmm so I'm well, starting to swear a lot. I'm sorry. No, hey, no this, okay. this book is all about swearing. I think <laughs> this is not a this is not a PG this is not a PG show. We're well, okay. Well, we made sure it <laughs> wasn't a PG book. Well, we made sure it wasn't a PG show because we're discussing horror, and True. let's face it, horror is not exactly going to be a G-rated Disney movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you like, I, I do. We re- only received one question for this one. Well, can, can we talk? Can we talk about the ending real quick? Go. Oh yeah, because we yeah. haven't talked about Arvin either. Yeah, yeah Arvin is. Arvin. Then, oh, I I think Arvin was my favorite. Yeah, just because like in the beginning with the prayer log, I. I pictured this just like this sad, quiet little kid. And then like for some reason I pictured him blonde. Yeah. In the beginning. Like this just like sad little blonde kid, just like little angel. And then at the end they describe him with the dark hair and the bright green eyes, like holding the gun when he's like about to shoot Tea Garden. Mm-hmm. And my mind for some reason pictured like Hero Yui from kind of Wayne. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, so he was uh, Hero Yui like the rest of the book for some reason. But um Oh my god, you've ruined me. Now I'm not going to be able to picture any of the characters in my head as, I, except as anime characters. I pictured him as Harry Potter, personally. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Well, the fascinating part is I, his father's influence on him is like, you have, you can't just stand around. You've got to do something. And that force, that makes him become this teenager that's like, I'm going to, fuck it. I'm going to, if someone wrongs me or someone that I care for, they're going down. And yeah, but you have to do it carefully. Yeah. Which is all t- part of his father's advice, too. Like, you know, hit them when they're not expecting it. Timing is everything. Yep. A lot of what Arvin's character is, is, like, what his father taught him. Mm-hmm. And even though, like, a good portion of the book, he's 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 angry that his father left him, he, he still holds very true to what his father taught him. And that was really interesting. Yeah, it's... Uh... Um, Arvin, you know, the thing is, like, despite everything, like, deep down, you can kind of see with with his father, like, that down in there, there is a good man, even with the stuff that was haunting him from the war Mm -hmm. and what they did. Um, And that what Arvin did was took what was given to him by his father and kind of made it better, like made it more righteous in a way, you know, it, that's what I say. I'm sorry. I mean, that's just how I perceive Arvin. He's Arvin. I is get it. I agree with more, you. Arvin is the like most noble character in the story. Well, the, it, here's the interesting thing. That's what I feel like all the characters are is basically products of their upbringing, and it's either how if they go full with it with their upbringing, or if they have conflict with it and how that affects them. Yeah, Arvin is one of the few characters though who does. He, just like I said, he does something. A lot yeah. of these other characters, like 
are stuck in their ways and they they stagnate. Exactly. I mean, with Sandy, it's like you can tell the reasons why she is doing this is because she had become stagnant because of her upbringing and wanted to get out of Dodge, basically. Yeah, basically. But Arvin, like when Arvin started taking things into his own hands, and I know this isn't really like, I, I, I this is something I've wanted to address for a little bit, but this story is full of literal Chekhov's guns. <laughs> right. <laughs> We get we get the German Luger like introduced near the very beginning of the novel. And we still we we and that becomes so significant later. I'm like, see, Donald Ray Pollock knows what he's doing. He's like, I've got I've actually got a Chekhov's gun. I'm going to use that fucking gun. <laughs> and then like Jack is introduced towards the beginning and he Jack the puppy and then he makes oh, poor pupper. Oh, poor pupper. <laughs> Chekhov's Come dog. Come in peace, pupper. Chekhov's dog. Chekhov's dog. <laughs> And then, like, Arvin's turn towards the end has a lot to do with Jack. Yeah. Oh, my God. But that, and that ending. Mm. Oh, that ending. Mm. I like the way it ended because ultimately Arvin survived three situations with really shitty people. And came out a badass. He came out a badass. (laughs) Came out on top. Righteous indignation for the win. Fuck yeah, Arvin. (laughs) Oh, he's, he's the best. He's my favorite character. There's two things we can discuss. Um, One, I think, is like the theme of religion and how it plays a role in this novel. But I also Mm. have one question from a uh, fan as well. Let's start the fan question. Yeah. This is from The Lolliot. Thank you. How do the horror themes in this novel differ differ from other horror? uh, The way he writes it is the books being written in the genre now and in the past. Basically, the idea being, how does this horror novel compare to other horror novels in terms of genre? Because when was this written? Wasn't it in the... Uh, let me check. I have the book right next to me. Let's see who can Let's outrace. Because I have it right in front of 2011. You. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to doing this, sir. That's so a, fair. So it's a fairly uh, recent novel. So how would how would you compare this mm. horror, the horror of this genre to other genres? I mean, we did explain that the horror comes from the motivations behind the characters, but also in also the creepy imagery. But it isn't the typical. It's definitely not the typical like victim, like victim's point of view, caught in a situation that is scary i'm just gonna repeat myself from earlier i think for me the horror comes in just like how human the the characters are and just that's where the the gruesome acts that they're committing just the the reasons for it that for me is where the horror come from it's like how human all the characters are made to be no matter how vile and despicable they are you, you they, their humanity comes across strongly. i completely agree i completely agree with you I have a question for Chelsea. Yeah. How does this compare, say, because you, you've read his other works, like to say, knock him stiff. A lot like um, all of his work is really good, but this gives you a really good idea of how the other books are written, like constant changes of perspective. Um, the Heavenly Table is set in the early 18 or 1900s. So there's a time change with that one. Knock 'em Stiff is written, I think, in a similar time period or a little later than Devil All the Time. I don't quite remember. It's been a few years. Mm-hmm. But, like, uh, Knock 'em Stiff is really similar to Devil All the Time, where Heavenly Table 
takes place earlier in Southern Ohio. Everything is set in Southern Ohio, by the way, or West Virginia. I mean, um, makes- everything, everything is Appalachian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. You kind of write what you know. A lot of authors do that. And he writes this well. He writes Appalachian characters extremely well. So He is from Appalachia. He's from Chillicothe. And he, <laughs> he, he clearly knows it very well. He's very good at like, exaggerating the drama that goes on he exaggerates the drama without exaggerating the writing yeah it doesn't feel i mean when we the way we describe it it almost sounds like a soap opera but when you read it it doesn't it's it's although like so grounded yeah like i say Mm -hmm. exaggerated but there are cases of this kind of stuff happening right like i think there's an average between five and seven serial killers coming and going in ohio at all times jeez and then there there was that serial arsonist for a while and chill a coffee I remember Brandon talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Not swimming coyote, a legitimate person. Yeah. Well, for all we know, the spirit of entropy could have, uh, you know, gotten into this arsonist. Entropy, that that is a big thing, I think, with all of his novels is entropy. Mm-hmm. Entropy and stagnation. Is religion another big one or? Yes. Well, I mean, religion's a big thing in Appalachia. <laughs> That is why, like, he mentions, like, all of the cussing I know is just like, oh, Jesus Christ, oh, Lord. Like, it, it has to do with that. And it's just like, oh, God, bless your heart. It's yeah, it's, it's a lot of that kind of stuff. And that's normal, you know, because <laughs> when you, when I first heard of this, it's like I was thinking, like, OK, the religion has to be some sort of important thematically. I'm like, no, I think it's no, more just the culture of it. Exactly. But it's a really important subtext. For the it novel, is. because mm-hmm. especially this one, because I mean, not only is it, does it have the is the devil in the title, and you actually early on, on the seeing, yeah, the devil all the time. The the thing that st- struck me about this novel was everybody's like conflated sense of piety, even in the face of all the horrible shit they do to themselves and to other people, while still justifying themselves being religious. There's a lot of characters who do that, and it's and it's really fascinating because mm-hmm. that just that there's that undertone of this piety that runs through it that feels very um uh, feels very strange. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a key part of like the the themes of the the novel is this false piety. Yeah, mm-hmm. using religion as sort of a justification, not a justification, but there's like so many people who say you know who claim to be scared of you know claim to fear the Lord, and yet here they are doing these acts and. Some of them finding the flimsiest of excuses. Like, look at, uh, again, look at Preacher Tea Garden. He talks about he could do whatever he wanted. And as long as by the end of his uh, his his lifetime, he, he confessed and, you know, said, I've sinned, Father, forgive me. He was in the clear. Mm. So he could be a sinner, basically, while yeah. still keeping a holier-than-thou attitude. And I'm like, man, another reason I want to say, fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a semi-common attitude in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which I think is another reason why I really love his writing. Because, <laughs> like, I, is not, my dad's is not side of the family is, is really Baptist. So, okay. like, growing up with crazy Baptist family really I, makes this relatable for me. <laughs> I, I didn't want to make assumptions that that's how it really was. But, it, I mean, I just figured that was a theme of the novel. But, I mean, I guess that's also still holding true to the Appalachian roots. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know it's definitely true in Oak Hill. But like I, I know that Brandon's Brandon's uh, parents are um, from Appalachia as well, and his mom was like, "Oh, your family's from Oak Hill. They're crazy there." <laughs> 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 it's like, yeah, they are. They're really yeah. nuts. 
is there anything else or uh what did you guys think about um like i i just was wondering uh like in the beginning when helen said she was scared that not helen uh emma was scared that god would punish them all since he made uh she made a promise to him that she'd get willard with helen and that never happened and then all of the events took place oh how do you think that uh that's interesting i didn't think of that that was just Hmm. something interesting i noticed no i noticed it too i just um i didn't put much thought into it other than thinking oh this is just emma being emma but you make a very good case yes everything went wrong for literally everyone everyone involved in that promise of hers everything went wrong for them everything which is really but oh my god i almost said candy but uh sandy and carl weren't involved and they still had a gruesome end tea garden wasn't involved well they they got kind of pulled into it they got involved because they met the people who were involved in in helen's promise but what about what about arvin though i mean arvin did go through through hell but he at least he at least came out of it arvin's the direct result of breaking that promise though if 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 willard had married had ended up with helen well he didn't but here's the thing arvin didn't like do anything to keep that promise or anything and that is true there are other people involved that have nothing to do with this scenario it's just bad stuff they it's just they kind of cross paths but they don't but the the bad stuff happens to them because they they cross paths with if you want to go with this theme with essentially the result of that broken promise things go things are like okay for sandy and carl until but but they're horrible but here's the thing they I mean, are horrible, horrible people, people. Evil. No, they're horrible people, but I'm and just talking about... Okay, never mind. So, like, they're horrible people, but they're not going to get caught until they cross paths with them. That's- yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but and, then, but why would that be a pun? Why would God be like, oh, you ran into one of these guys? Well, serial killers are gonna get killed. This is something terrible. It's terrible for Arvin. But Arvin basically, it's all still terrible for Arvin. But Arvin basically, and we're, we're, we're literally saying this. This affects everybody involved. Everybody. I I think of it more as it's chaos rather than this was some divine intervention. But that's the fun part. You don't know if it's divine intervention or just chaos. I hope it's just chaos, but hey, it's a narrative. So there's clearly a, there's a mind behind this and it's, (laughs) they, they, someone pissed off Donald Ray Pollock and he's just like, yeah, I'm gonna kill some motherfuckers. Let's look at me. I am God now. (laughs) I am the God. I am the God. Let's face it. Donald Ray Pollock is God. He's the one who caused this. He's like, well, these characters piss me off. Or is he the devil all the time? Done. Well, I wasn't drinking the devil all the time. That's true. It's purely <laughs> alcohol. Sweet demon alcohol. Oh, sweet, beautiful alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else or are we... I fucking love uh, this. David, didn't you have something that you noticed that you wanted to talk about? Besides the besides the Chekhov's gun? Oh, yeah, we did talk about that, didn't we? Mm-hmm. That I was forgot mean- about that. Well, there, there's there's two Chekhov's guns. I, I like to get, in narratives, I like when there's an object that continues to play an important role throughout the rest of the story. The German Luger is one of them, but the other one is the is the decision to give Sandy blanks. Oh my oh God, yeah. God. That was the worst <laughs> decision on Carl's part. It comes, yeah. I knew it, it was bites him in the ass so hard. And it pays off so well in the story. And Carl, then Arvin's just like, I can't believe she missed me. Yeah. <laughs> 
point blank for some reason. I know, she shot him with a blank. But because she shot at him with a blank, he's like, well, got to defend myself, kill Sandy. <laughs> right. That's, it's it's so, the, the, to me, those two points in particular are another sign of how well-crafted the narrative is. It is really good. Like, it's so, it, it's so tightly written. It's everything, like, connects. It, you could tell a lot of thought and like thought was put into the story, but not only that, he has his own writing style that just fits and it, it's so good. I like how it starts out. These characters are all kind of loosely connected, but you can find the connections between them. And then the, the connections get tighter and tighter and tighter mm-hmm. by you sort of building up to this conclusion where suddenly the world has gotten smaller and all these characters are meeting each other. Roy gets picked up by Carl and Sandy and is then killed by them. And then Arvin mm-hmm. gets picked up by Carl and Sandy, which then pulls uh, Bodeker into it. And then, yeah. you know, it's just, mm. Thank you. <laughs> so- Bodeker already had a, a connection to Arvin because he was the one who showed up when they called the police about uh, Willard's death. Right, which makes their, their final confrontation at the prayer log be all the more, like, thematically significant. Yeah. so much good from this book like honestly chelsea thank you yeah like okay i I think i was somewhere in the middle of chapter so i I bought it from my kindle so i could read it wherever Mm -hmm. i was i was in the middle of chapter three or four and i was like i need to have a hard copy of this book right and i went out and bought one so now i have my my kindle version and my hard copy that i that i really like nice yeah, I have uh, a Kindle version. I have a hardback version. And then Brandon got me a signed copy. Amazing. <laughs> clearly, the next step is to find uh, Donald Ray Pollock so he can sign your boob. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> clearly. I am glad to have this copy of the book and i'm glad to have it potentially well i have yet to find room for it in my bookshelf but it will find room and i do heavily suggest his other novels definitely um i will be looking into those the heavenly table sounds really cool just based on um, the time period i remember like it it opens up like the the name like i feel like the name is almost always dropped within the first five pages with his books (laughs) Um, well the fact the fact that he's got a novel called Knock'em Stiff and we we have and we have Knock'em Stiff mentioned as a location or as a specific location in this uh, story just goes to show like, hey, we have this great interconnected universe throughout his his novels. Right. All right. Probably should start ending it. This was longer than I thought it would be. Wow. Well, we had a lot so to say. Good. Yeah, so good. I was. I was worried we wouldn't get too many questions, but I knew that even if we didn't ha- get any questions for this one, we would have a lot to discuss. Yeah. So. Th- there, there's so many intricate details in this novel. Mm. Anyway, uh, so we're going to actually take a hiatus this December because it's the holidays, everybody. And actually, a lot's going on. Um, Sade is mm. currently in the midst of a move. I actually have a couple weeks off work that I'm going to take advantage of to relax finally. I have multiple <laughs> job interviews. Wish me luck. Good luck. And I've got a Midnight Marinara to produce. So we figured let's take December off. But during that well, time. Oh, go ahead. January. We're actually taking January off. January. So no episode for January. Oh, fuck no- you. It's January. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Because it's like we're reading throughout December and then and then uh, early January. There's no episode. But throughout that time, we're going to offer a poll to our uh, listeners out there. You get to decide what we read. We've narrowed it down to three choices. And here's the fun part. Uh, they're going to be 
graph it's gonna be a graphic novel a horror <laughs> horror graphic novel <laughs> so we are we are we are expanding how cool is that yeah so we have three uh we have three we have three graphic novels and we will get to all of them eventually but whichever one you pick first whichever one you vote gets voted highest is the one we'll, we will do in february yeah that'll be the one we will um read and then uh put on the podcast for february 13th what are our choices so we got uzumaki by junji ito uh we have uh, arkham asylum a serious house on serious earth by grant morrison and then we have through the woods by emily carroll so just go to Darkly Lit Pod on Twitter, and we'll have the poll up there for how long? We'll have it up there for a good for a good while. Yeah, as long as we can. As long as Twitter will let <laughs> Next it. Next five years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we can, we'll keep it up until January thirteenth. That sounds good. So that way, during that month, people can go in, vote, make their choice, and then by that time, we'll know exactly what we'll be reading, and then we can you can start posing your questions you want to you want us to ask exactly you want to ask us about the work we're covering also um take that time to uh make audio comments or send us emails or anything like that about what we just read i mean we discussed it quite a bit but if you have more to say please contact us at darkly lit podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at darkly lit pod or on Facebook, also at Darkly Lit Pod. We run the social media gamut. You'll find us everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, do you guys have any plugs before we um, end this up? Uh, I do. If you like Donald Ray Pollock's work, his writing really reminds me of Dead Palette. So go listen to him on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend Dead Palette as well. Sure, I'll recommend Dead Palette. <laughs> <laughs> I also recommend, uh, since I mentioned it earlier, go listen to uh, Midnight Marinara's version of A Rose for Emily. It's a, episode 29. It's actually really good. I I enjoyed it, and they actually helped with a little bit of uh, editing on that. The, or for writing editing, I mean. Mm-hmm. Let me plug, let me plug. Mm-hmm. Um, later, so The Witching Hour has been on an odd hiatus, um, but in December, so at the end of this month, we will have a new episode where we talk with the artist for Cyrus, and she shares some of her tips on uh, working as a creative and just branding herself. So that was a, a good, fun interview. That sounds good. Fantastic. I can't wait to listen to that one. It was it was really fun having her on. So Woo. awesome! All right, so time to blow the candles out and uh, say good night. We will be back February thirteenth, everybody. Until then, happy stay holidays. Frosty. Happy holidays. <laughs> you were a good dog, Jack. Oh, why would you do that? Why would you do that to us? <laughs> we had to end on something profound. It was like, yay, happy holidays, dead dog. Oh. <laughs> it's a horror podcast, you guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs>